You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now will you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll begin reading at verse 13, and we will read to the end of verse 30 together. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury and as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I can do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we confess to you our inadequacy and inability to understand spiritual things apart from regeneration and the indwelling of your Spirit. So we thank you that you have given to us these things and also your Word, which has made your nature and your character clear to us. We ask now that you would help us to understand your Word, give us hearts which are humbled and ready to obey, quick to understand, and quick to obey the things that we understand. Thank you for your grace, which makes this possible. We ask that this time that we spend here in your word might be for our edification and equipping and your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this last week I did a funeral, which I'm sometimes called upon to do. And uh, the funeral involved both the graveside and a memorial service. And any time I do a funeral, I always make sure that I remind people, especially at a graveside, because that is the best time, I always make sure that I remind people that This, namely the grave, is the end of all living. You're standing at a graveside with a hole dug in the ground and you're standing there around with the family. It is always good to remind people that everybody who's standing here is headed toward this destination. We are all going to have a hole dug in our honor. And we are all going to be put into what I call pine pajamas and we are all going to be lowered beneath the surface of the ground. That is the end of all living. And at this particular funeral service that I did... um, Standing right beneath my feet, or lying right beneath my feet, was a tombstone with the name of of a man who had died some 14 years earlier, and the name of his widowed wife right beside it, 
and her name was filled in with her birth date, but there was nothing engraved in the death date. And the lady whose husband had died was sitting here at this gravesite as they were burying their son right here beneath our feet. And there were also many other loved ones whose names were marked on the on the tombstones right next to this. And I pointed out to everybody there is a grave marker here with a birth date etched in stone and no death date etched in stone. But I can guarantee you that there is coming a day when that death date will be etched in stone. And all of us could have a tombstone just like that, couldn't we? All of us could have a tombstone with our birthday etched in stone. And God knows what eventually is going to be our death date etched in stone. But most certainly, we have a death date that is going to be etched in stone. And we are going to be lowered beneath the surface of the ground. That is the end of all living. And I also remind people at funerals that the way in which you leave this life is the way in which you will spend eternity. If you leave this life with in sin, which is unrepented of and unatoned for and unforgiven, you will spend all of eternity in sin, unrepented of, unatoned for, and unforgiven, suffering the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, against sinners who have violated His law. If, on the other hand, when you leave this life, your sins have been repented of, atoned for, and forgiven, then your eternity will reflect that. And you will spend your time in the presence of God because you have been justified. So it stands to reason then that the most horrific, the worst circumstance in which you could possibly fall is to die in your iniquity, to die in your sin. To die in a condition where your sins are unrepented of, unatoned for, and unforgiven. Because that is the, that is the ultimate destruction. That is the ultimate loss. That is what Jesus warned these men in John chapter 8 about. Dying in their iniquity. And he warned them, and it was a gracious warning, it was a kind warning, that if they continued in their sin, unrepentant, that they would also die unatoned for and unforgiven. Because they would die in their iniquity or in their sin, rather than in a state of forgiveness, righteousness, and justification. That is John 8, and this is what we call the light of the world discourse. Now just to review quickly for you, John 8, the light of the world discourse, begins by Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Jews sort of dismissed his testimony, citing a legal technicality. You're testifying about yourself, therefore your testimony is not valid. It's not legitimate. It's not true, is what they were saying. And then Jesus pointed out basically two real primary points. Number one, what I say is true, even if I say it by myself, even if I testify about myself, which he did. Jesus said, my testimony is true. What I say is true. What makes something true? Just the fact that Jesus says it makes it true. So even if nobody substantiates it, even if nobody collaborates his testimony, even if nobody else agrees with it, Jesus said, what I say is true because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But then he points out that in their law it was required that there were two people to testify and they accepted the testimony of two men as true. They were even willing to put somebody to death based upon the testimony of two witnesses who agreed. But then Jesus points out, I have testified about myself and the Father who sent me has also testified of me. And those two are in complete agreement in all things, one in nature, one in substance, not one in person, but one in nature and one in substance, and their testimony agreed. So they were obligated by their law to accept the testimony of Jesus regarding himself and the Father. That brings us up to where we left off after last week. And now we're picking it up in verse 19, where the Jews then respond to him. Now remember, Jesus has just appealed to his Father. And here's what Jesus is going to do with these Pharisees. He is going to warn them about their unbelief. They're going to demonstrate their unbelief in their question, 
And then Jesus is going to warn them, if you continue in this, you will die in your sins and you will not be able to come to where I am going. I'm going to the presence of the Father, and if you die in sin, you will be excluded from my presence. And there are two consequences, two effects of sin, which Jesus highlights in these verses. Now, there are more than just two effects to sin, more than two consequences, but there are two of them that are addressed here in John 8. The first is that sin blinds men to a, from a true knowledge of God. And second, sin excludes men from the presence of God. He, sin blinds men to a true knowledge of God, and sin excludes men from the presence of God. So let's read together verse 19 where they ask the question. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught him in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Those verses describe sin blinding men to a true knowledge of, of God. Now look at verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now that is sin excluding men from the presence of God. So two effects, blinding people to a true knowledge of God and excluding people from the presence of God. That is why dying in unbelief is so horrible. Because the way in which you live this life and end this life is the way in which you will spend eternity, all of eternity. If you leave this life justified and forgiven, you spend eternity justified, righteous, and forgiven. If you leave this life in sin, unforgiven, and unatoned for, then you will spend all of eternity in sin, unforgiven, and unatoned for. Horrible consequences. So let's look at these two. Blinds men to a true knowledge of God. Look at their question in verse 19. They were saying to him, where is your father? Now listen for just a second. The, the understanding of this passage, I think, is all related to understanding how they're asking this question. If you think that they're really inquiring, oh, please show us the father, as if there's a genuine desire to know, a genuine desire for knowledge, then you're reading the question wrong. I think it's more likely that this question was spoken in a sneering and sarcastic tone, like this. Where's your father? You see the difference? Jesus has appealed to his father as a witness and a testimony, and they have basically, in a sneering and sarcastic way, said, show us your father. Now, there's something very subtle there, and do you catch it? Could Jesus point to an earthly father, a biological earthly father? He could not. He was virgin-born. Now, they knew this. They knew that he was virgin, or they knew that of the claim that he was virgin-born. This statement is kind of like saying, why don't you show us? Why don't you point to us to an earthly father? Show us your father who can testify. Looking around. We don't see no father around here. No, no, none of your, your biological father's not stepping up to testify because you don't have one. That's the insinuation. Where is your father? It might also be that they understood that Jesus was speaking of his heavenly father, but they willfully in their ignorance and their blindness twisted his words so as to sort of give them the meaning that he was speaking of an earthly father, and so they're using that against him. And now they're saying, well, why don't you show us your earthly father? Well, call him forward to testify on your behalf. And he's not there. Look at that. Virgin born, right, right, we, we know about that. See, later on they say, we were not born of fornication. Throughout this chapter, the issue of the fatherhood of Jesus, their father, who his father was, this comes up over and over again. And here it begins, where is your father? Point us to your father. Or maybe they are, it might be that they are snidely requesting that he show them the heavenly father, right? He has already 
alluded to the fact that He is one in nature, one in substance. He is united with them. He has told them, just as the Father judges, so I judge. Just as the Father works, so I work. Everything that I do, the Father does in me. He has testified of me. We are one in nature, one in substance. We are intimately united to one another. So maybe it's they're saying this. Since you claim intimate unity with the Father, why don't you reveal the Father to us? Kind of like Philip's statement in John 14. Show us the Father. Maybe that's what they're asking. If you have this union, this one in substance, this oneness of nature with the Father, why don't you open heaven up and show us the Father? That is a, that is a snide, sarcastic, sneering question. Where is your Father? But Jesus passes right over that, doesn't even get to their innuendo, doesn't even address the sort of double entendre that they're getting at there in, in, in the snide, snarky way of trying to speak of his illegitimacy. And he just simply says in verse 20, or verse 19, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. You do not know me, and you do not know my Father. Now let me ask you a question. Did they know Jesus? Did they know His name? Yeah, did they know where He came from? Yeah, they knew He came from Nazareth. They knew He came from Galilee. They knew of His family. They knew of His claims. They knew He was from the northern regions. Did they know what He was suggesting that He was, that He was the Messiah? Did they know that He did miracles? That was obvious to everybody. So when Jesus says, you do not know me, what is He talking about? He's talking about more than just knowing facts about him, isn't he? He is saying, you do not really know who I am in truth. That's the condemnation. Up earlier in the passage, we saw Jesus say to them, you judge everything according to the flesh. You look at me and all you see is somebody whose childhood and birth is shrouded in mystery and scandal. You look at me and all you see is a traveling rabbi, the son of a carpenter from the most despised region of the country. You look at me and all you see is somebody with dirty feet, no glowing halo, nothing about me which is special, no desirable characteristics. That's all you see of him. And Jesus is saying to them, but you do not truly understand my nature. You don't see who I truly am in truth. And for that reason, you do not know the Father either. You see, to know Jesus truly, in truth, as He is revealed in Scripture, is to know the Father. Those two cannot be separated. Do you understand that? Nobody can honestly say, I have a relationship with God. I don't have time for Jesus. I'm not interested in all the Jesus stuff. I have my own relationship with God, which is very meaningful to me. It's very, I'm very spiritual. I've done funerals for people who say that. I begin to ask somebody, because I get, I get calls from funeral homes just because I'm a pastor, when nobody knows, when nobody, when somebody dies and their family doesn't know any pastors in the community, this person has never attended church, guess what happens? The funeral director just starts calling them up in alphabetical order. Eventually they get to Kootenai Community Church and he calls me up, would you do the funeral? And I will usually jump at the opportunity to preach the gospel, and so I will do it. And sitting down and talking with the family, here's usually what I will hear. Somebody will say something like this, oh, he was a spiritual person. Not really into the Jesus stuff, but a very spiritual person. He, he had his own relationship with God. He was really in tune with the divine. And he used to go out and do fishing and, and uh, ride his bike and hiking and camping and all that stuff. He really had, he talked to, he talked to God all the time. Do you understand that it is impossible to have a true knowledge of who God is without a knowledge of who Jesus is? And you must know the right Jesus. It is not sufficient to know somebody named Jesus. It's not sufficient to know a Jesus who is very similar to the Jesus of the New Testament, but not quite right. John warns about this in 1 John 2, 22 through 24. In 2 John, verse 9, John writes this, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, did you hear that? The one who goes outside of the teaching of Christ and does not stay in a true knowledge of the true Jesus 
The one who is outside of that does not have the Father either. You can't have the Father without having Jesus. And if you have the true Jesus, then you have the entire triune God. You have the Father, and you have come to know the Holy Spirit as well. But once you depart from a true knowledge of Jesus, you do not have the Father. This is the error, or the horrible error, of cults and denominations that get the doctrine of God wrong. You see, the problem with Jehovah's Witnesses is not that they have a few false prophecies from the late 1800s, early 1900s. That's not really the issue with the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know what the real core issue with Jehovah's Witnesses is? They have an entirely different Jesus than Jesus of the Bible. Their doctrine of God is completely other than the doctrine of God revealed in Scripture. And so, of course, they have a different doctrine of salvation, a different doctrine of Scripture, a different doctrine of human depravity, a different doctrine of how people are uh, uh, come to faith in Christ, a different doctrine of the Holy Spirit. All the other doctrines are messed up because their doctrine of God is wrong. Do you realize that the problem with Mormons is not that they wear weird underwear or pray for the dead? you understand that that's not really the, the issue with Mormons? Do you understand what the real issue with Mormon theology is? It's an entirely different doctrine of God. And when you have a warped, wrong understanding of the doctrine of God, every other doctrine will be twisted. If you get the doctrine of God wrong, you are so far off that you cannot get anything else right. That is the problem with Jehovah's Witness and Mormon theology. And I almost almost get into trouble every time I say this, but you know what the problem is with Phillips, Craig, and Dean? The quote-unquote Christian music group? They're heretics, friends. They have a different God. They don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They do not believe in the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. Very talented, very skilled. I understand that. But listen, their doctrine of God is wrong. They are lost and they are still in darkness. If you do not have the right Jesus, you do not have the Father. And those two things are inseparably linked and you cannot have one without the other. And this linking of those two things is something that John alludes to all the way through his Gospel. We saw it back in chapter 5. Verses 23 and 24. When Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. You cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son. And you cannot worship God the Father without coming to Him through God the Son. In the power of the Holy Spirit, they're inseparably linked. In John 14, Philip said to Jesus, Show us the Father. And what did Jesus say? Philip, I've been with you this long and you asked me to show you the Father? Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Not because Philip was seeing the same person, but because Philip was seeing the same nature, the same essence, the same being, and that is God. To see Jesus is to see all that can be seen, all that can be revealed to fallen man in the Father. That's John's point in John chapter 1 when he says that the Word became flesh and we beheld the glory of the only begotten Son of God. We saw His glory. We saw and beheld the glory of the Father in the Son. John 1.18, no one has seen God, that is the Father, at any time. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed the Father to us. Jesus is the full revelation of all that can be known of God. And so to love Jesus is to love the Father. To honor Jesus is to honor the Father. To worship Jesus is to worship God. To request or to pray to Jesus is to pray to God because they are inseparably linked. And you cannot have one without the other. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, In Christ dwells all the fullness of Godhead in bodily form. And Hebrew 1 3 says that Jesus is the the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of the nature of God. What can be known of God, you see it in Jesus Christ. He is the full manifestation of all that God is and all that God has done for sinful man. All the character and nature of God, His essence is on display in the Word became flesh. 
That is why Jesus said, You cannot come to the Father except through me. And, Jesus said in verse 19, You know neither me nor my Father, and if you knew me, you would know the Father. They didn't know Jesus, and so they didn't know the Father. Now consider the audience. You might expect that this is something that could be said of some remote tribesman in some deserted area of the jungle that has never had Moses and never had the prophets and never had a, a teacher or a rabbi or a synagogue or a revealed scripture anywhere near them. But who is Jesus speaking to? Pharisees. These people prided themselves on what they knew of God. They prided themselves on how they knew the scriptures. And all the, they knew all of the minutia. They read Moses and the prophets every Sabbath in the synagogue. They memorized large passages of the Old Testament. They memorized individual psalms. Almost all of the Psalter most Pharisees had memorized. They knew the five books of Moses' Torah. They knew those things and they prided themselves on all of that knowledge. And yet Jesus says, you do not know the one true God. Now, no Pharisee would have ever described himself as being ignorant of the one true God. And yet what Jesus has said is, you are ignorant because you do not know me. You are ignorant of the one true God. If you knew me, you would know the Father. And if you knew the Father, and if you loved the Father, then you would know and you would love me as well. But they were isolated in a knowledge of God from, uh, isolated from a knowledge of God, blinded to it by their sin of unbelief because they would not embrace the Son. You didn't realize how insulting that was to a Pharisee? Do you know how eminently insulting that was to a Pharisee? Is Jesus insulting them just for the sake of insulting them? He's telling them the truth, right? And the truth is what they needed to hear. One of the things you and I should learn from this is that an intimate and a thorough knowledge of Scripture is not mutually exclusive with spiritual darkness. Knowing Scripture is not exclusive from a spiritual darkness. You, It is possible for people to have an intimate and thorough knowledge of Scripture and yet be entirely in spiritual darkness. Have you ever met people who know the Bible? They can quote the Bible. They have been raised on the Bible. And yet, is there any fruit or any, uh, any evidence that they are actually saved and that they have come to a knowledge of the truth? None. And I will say to you, friends, that this is the danger in churches like ours. We love Scripture here. This is one of the things that binds us together is a love for and a hunger for Scripture and the deep things of Scripture. One of the dangers that can present itself to us is that we might think that because we know a lot of things and we know them well, that we are therefore rightly related to God and we know God well. And those two things are not necessarily true. Look at the Pharisees. That's exhibit A. The Pharisees, they knew Scripture, but they did not know the God of the Bible. They did not know the God of the Bible. Verse 20 now keep in mind how insulting this was. Verse 20 is the, the place marker as to where Jesus said these things. And when you understand how insulting this was to the Pharisees, it makes verse 20 kind of come alive a little bit. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus spoke these things in the treasury. Now I mentioned a few weeks ago that the treasury was not a building apart from the temple in some other complex. The treasury was something within the temple complex itself. In fact, it was very close to the court of the, it was inside the court of the women. There were 13 receptacles there where people could come and they could deposit money for all of the various ministries within the temple. There's one thing that, that makes this significant. The treasury was right next door to the hall where the Sadducees and the Pharisees met. So the people who are intent on killing Jesus, their meeting place is right next door to the treasury. In other words, there is no more dangerous place in all of the world for Jesus to say these things than right next door to the meeting place of the people who are trying to kill him. A couple of Bible commentators said if Jesus had raised his voice to be heard by the crowd, 
that would have echoed into the hall where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were meeting. They wanted to kill him. And they were offended by this. Which is why John says, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And the reason they had not seized him was not because they didn't have opportunity, and it's not because they didn't have desire to seize him. It is because of nothing else than the sovereign plan of God. It was not his time to go. And that we've seen that all the way through chapter 7. You remember that? They tried to seize him, but his hour had not yet come. They tried to seize him, but his hour, his time was not yet. The death of Jesus could not take place apart from the allowance of the Father, the Father allowing that, the Father uh, putting in place the things that would uh, that would facilitate that happening. The death of Christ could not happen apart from the sovereign plan of God. And the same is true of you and I, by the way. You have your, de- your birthday etched in stone, right? Your little imaginary headstone. Your death date is etched in stone in God's book. And there is nothing that's going to stop that or delay that or hasten that. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this verse, says, Not a hair of a believer's head can be touched until God in his sovereign wisdom allows it. This verse teaches that all times are in God's hand. There is an allotted hour for our doing and for suffering. Till the hour comes for dying, no Christian will die. When the hour comes, nothing can prevent his death. These are comfortable truths and deserve attention. Christ's members are safe and immortal till our work is done. And when they suffer, it is because God wills it and he sees it good. End quote. Until it's your time to die, you cannot die. Till your hour has come, you cannot die. You are immortal. But listen, once your hour comes, there's not a doctor or machine on the face of the planet that can keep you alive one moment longer than God intends for you to stay alive. Once you get your mind around that truth and your heart under that truth, it will be a source of unspeakable comfort to you to know that that is the case, that all of your days are written in his book before there was yet one of them. All right, sin blinds men to a true knowledge of God. Second, sin excludes men from the presence of God. Look at verse 21. Then he said to them, said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You notice that Jesus says again there. He says, or John says that Jesus said again. The word again calls to our mind that this is not the first time that Jesus said something like this. Back in John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. It's almost the same phrase he says in chapter 8. In chapter 8, he says, you will seek me and will die in your sin. Chapter 7, he says, you will seek me and you won't find me. Those two things are the same. To die in your sin is to not find Jesus. Now the question is, what did Jesus mean when he says, you will seek me? In what sense would these hardened, unbelieving, Christ-hating, hostile Pharisees seek after Jesus? Good question. What does Jesus mean when he says, you will seek me? There's two possibilities. The first one, I think, is probably what Jesus means. That is that they would seek after a Messiah. Having rejected Jesus, the Jews would continue to seek after a Messiah. Their Messiah is Jesus. They're really stumbling around searching for Jesus, though they're not finding him and they don't see it because they've rejected him. And so Jesus is saying, after I die and go to the Father, you're going to continue to seek for a Messiah. But having rejected me, you will never find me. That's likely what Jesus is saying. It might be, and this would fit biblically, it might be that what Jesus is saying is, There will come a day when, in your hardness of heart and your unbelief, you will seek after me for mercy, but I will not give you mercy. And one of the judgments, the judicial—you'd think I speak for a living, right? One of the judicial punishments of God would be that they would seek for mercy and have a desire to find it, but they, they would not be able to find it because they had spent so much time in hardened unbelief toward Him. You will seek me, but. 
you will die in your sin. An Old Testament phrase taken from Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 18 when Ezekiel says, you will surely die and you, uh, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die and you do not warn him or speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. The wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. That phrase dying in iniquity both here and in Ezekiel has the idea of being warned in your path of sin. Just like, I mean, Jesus plucking this out of Ezekiel, right? Where God says to Ezekiel, I want you to warn people about their iniquity so that they might turn. And the one whom you warn, and he does not turn, his blood I will require at his hand. But if you don't warn him and he can't turn, his blood I will require at your hand. So Jesus is using that analogy, pulling that language out of Ezekiel, to say that he was warning the Pharisees, turn from your wicked way. But the Pharisees, instead of turning and dying in righteousness, will die in their iniquity if they continue in unbelief. That's what the phrase means in Ezekiel. You will die in your sin, in your iniquity, hardened in unbelief, because you would not trust in me. Because you would not come to me. Now that's another insult, right? Do you realize that that wicked men hate few things more than being told that they cannot come to where Christ is? Right? Look, a wicked person might have no interest in Jesus, no interest in Christianity, give no thought to heaven, but you tell them, I'm sorry, but you cannot, you are unable to go to heaven. What? Uh, How dare you say of me that I am not fit for God's presence? How dare you suggest of me that there is any inability in me to go to heaven? If I want to go to heaven, I would choose to go to heaven, and I can do it. That's what a wicked man responds to that. He might have no interest in the things of heaven, but tell him he can't go there because Christ is there, and he's going to be kept out? That's offensive. Oh, they hate that. See, every wicked person on the planet loves to proclaim his own goodness and would eventually say, you know what? God would be very lucky to have me there to bless him for all of eternity. And God would be a fool to keep me out of heaven for any reason whatsoever. That's how wicked people think. I mean, if a, if a rank sinner thinks of himself so highly as to be offended with the idea and the statement that he cannot go to heaven, how much more these self-righteous Pharisees? Us excluded for our sin? Have you met anyone in the nation of Israel that follows the law as arduously as we follow the law? And we are excluded from heaven? We are kept out of where you are going to go? Seriously? The audacity of such a statement, right? That's insulting. I want you to notice in the passage that it is an insult to be told that they cannot go to heaven. But I want you to also notice, friends, that Jesus warned them of that very truth. There are people who suppose that it is unloving and uncaring and unkind to talk to people about hell. In this funeral service that I did this last week during the gospel message, there was one person who got up, went, shook her head, and walked right out of the memorial service. They don't like to be told that they're sinners. They don't like to be told that they're in darkness. They don't like to be told that they're going to hell. But listen, it is not loving to withhold that from people. And it is not unloving to warn people of the judgment to come. If, if, If somebody is in physical danger and you fail or neglect to warn them, do you call that love? Some people say, well, Jesus just, he sat around, he hugged children, he blessed the children, he hung out with orphans and he visited widows, and he just loved on people. That's what we ought to do, just love on people like Jesus did. What does the text before us say? These are stern warnings. They're truth. It's the truth spoken in love. But he loved men enough to say, if you do not repent, you will die in your sin and you will die in your iniquity. It is not unloving to talk to people about hell. It is not unloving to warn people of the wrath that is to come and to flee to God from the wrath that is to come. You and I ought to have the audacity to love people in the same way 
and to the same degree as Jesus loved men. That involves speaking the truth in love and warning people about the wrath that is to come. Let us never fall into the trap of thinking that talking about hell and talking about the seriousness of sin and the wrath of God against lawbreakers is unloving. It is, in fact, the highest form of love. And it is negligence, cowardice, and pride that keeps us from doing that. And we ought never to do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have graciously revealed yourself not only in Scripture but in your Son. And like the men in this chapter who were hostile to you, we, without your grace, would have been willfully blind, willfully ignorant, and hated you without a cause. We thank you that instead of that, you have opened our eyes and opened our hearts to respond to the gospel, that your word and your gospel came to us not just in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full assurance so that we might be transformed into your children that we might be adopted into your family, given regenerated hearts, faith and repentance, and all of the blessings that you have given to us. We thank you for these things. We thank you that Christ has been made known to us. And now we ask, O oh God, that you would give us power, strength, boldness to make Christ known to others, to express in the highest form of love uh, your love to people and to warn them of the wrath that is to come so that they might flee to you such a gracious, kind, and loving and benevolent God. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.